welcome to episode 11 of the Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. I'm Sarah Kochaya, a doctoral researcher at Swansea University. I'm Patrick Bishop. I'm a senior lecturer also in Swansea University. And we are back after a long break. We are here to discuss some recent cyber law and security news, or in this case, actually, it's not really news, more of a happening. Yes. Um, um, but as always, the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers, research partners and or sponsors. Um, so on today's episode, we were going to talk about content regulation in a way. That's uh, something we've talked about quite a few times. Yeah. But this time we'll be discussing the online harms white paper, which was published and presented to Parliament by the UK government back in April. So a white paper is a government report which sets out information and proposals with respect to a specific issue. And in this case, it's a proposal for a new regulatory framework to ensure that tech tech companies or Tech, the relevant tech companies, I guess we'll talk about who this applies to, are meeting requirements and responsibilities in terms of tackling harmful and or illegal content. Is this a fair way of describing it? In, in some harmful is, is obviously a broader concept. Um, yeah. Some of the, what they call the harms in scope in the white paper would be things which are already illegal. So the things like extreme pornography, cyberbullying, etc., in many instances would be illegal. But they would be illegal for the person who's actually posted the material or engages in the cyberbullying, etc. And of course, that's fine. You can go after those people as a criminal justice response. But in many instances, that's not feasible because you can't find them. If you do find them, they're not within jurisdiction. So I think the focus here is not on the actual people who post this material or upload this material it's on the the companies the, the term companies in scope is incredibly broad it's just basically anyone who publishes anything online but obviously the focus would be on the big social media companies all social media companies and so i think the the purpose is, is to try and focus attention on those companies rather than the individual because of the problems associated with that so some things on the list would just be harms in the sense they're not illegal. So excessive online gambling, for example, clearly has the potential to cause harm, but isn't illegal. And then some things certainly would be illegal, such as extreme pornography, uh, harassment, hate speech, uh, incitement of violence, sale of illegal goods, etc. So there's an odd mix of things which are currently already illegal and some things which are not. not. Mm -hmm. But this isn't a criminal justice response. So the white paper doesn't advocate the regulatory use scheme is a criminal justice one. Mm -hmm. It is a regulatory scheme. To try and pinpoint who this applies to, I've got a little quote from the white paper here. It says that it will apply to, quote, companies that allow users to share or discover user-generated content or interact with each other online. Okay. So an incredibly broad yeah. Definition. So again, I mean, we can see how this applies to Twitter, Facebook, yeah. social But media. not only, obviously it'll apply to those, but it would also potentially cover things like the BBC will publish a news story and there'll be a comment section. Newspapers, The Guardian, The Times, etc. have something similar. Now that is user-generated content. So if someone posts something which potentially 
triggers this regime, they might come under the scope. But if you read the uh, the white paper, and we've read it, so our listeners don't have to, um, it's they talk a lot about a proportionate response, and that proportionate response is basically, I think, they will focus their attention on the it seems to be the the companies that disseminate the most material they talk about the companies who have the largest number of registered users who produce the the greatest volume of material or content etc so obviously the natural focus will be on those not necessarily the newspaper that allows the comment section Etc. Which, as we know, tend to be quite extreme. Yes. (laughs) Whether they're illegal or not, I don't know. But (laughs) Um, okay. So, in terms of what this may look like as a framework in practice, I made a couple of notes on the sorts of things that may be included in this framework. It's clear that it's, like you said, meant to be proportionate. So depending on the size of the company, the response Mm. may be different. But it's very much moving away from the self-regulation towards a a more, I guess, independent regulatory regime. Well, I think this is a culmination of several threats by various government ministers over several years to the social media sector, if such a thing exists, that if you don't get your house in order then we will force upon you uh, regulation. And I'm not saying this paper was, white paper was a knee-jerk response to this, but leading up to this publication, there were a couple of events in the news which give this white paper impetus. I'm thinking of the Molly Russell suicide case, mm-hmm. uh, the young girl who accessed lots of suicide forums and tragically took her own life, and the synagogue um, shootings in Christchurch. Uh, yeah. So as I said, I'm I'm not claiming that this was a knee-jerk reaction. This this was, I'm sure was planned well before that, but it did give that impetus, yeah, to do something about it. Yeah. And if you know if any anyone knows anything about government, you know if there's something as tragic causes public uproar occurs, the government feel like they need to do something about it. Whether it's effective or not doesn't matter as long as they it's a very cynical view, but as long as they are seen to be doing something about a perceived harm in society yeah i think interestingly as well when nick clegg moved over to work for facebook in Mm -hmm. in his capacity i can't remember what his exact title is but one of the things that struck me was how he he made these public statements about how it's up to governments to define what is harmful what what sort of content where where you draw the line between free speech and, and harmful content. And there was very much a, the ball is, is in your court. Yeah, which is quite unusual, really. It's yeah. very rare that like you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't have a newspaper editor or no. a newspaper owner calling for state regulation <laughs> of the newspaper industry. No. You know, the cynical view of Nick Clegg's approach is, well, this is PR, this is happening anyway, so we'll make the right noises in terms of we will play along. But what is good about it is it, it evens the playing field. So, you know, if you were Facebook, for example, you might think, well, why should we do X, Y, and Z if YouTube isn't doing that? Why should we subject ourselves to a self-imposed regulatory burden when our competitors are not? So at least with this scheme, it will even that playing field. 
and give it should give an element of certainty because we'll discuss the exact scheme in a second but the way the scheme will work is there'll be lots of definitions there and that will give some certainty so as you said one big issue is where do you draw the line between freedom of speech and harmful content and um, i think the the scheme or the framework will help with that so yeah yeah uh, so there's a cynical interpretation, and this is a PR exercise on behalf of Nick Clegg, but there's also, I think, the more legitimate view that this will help. Essentially, it'll give a lot of certainty and will even the playing field across the, the industry. So basically, what is this regulation, well, or proposed regulation going to look like? So we've got a new statutory duty of care, yes. which is applied to these companies, defined broadly as we discussed, towards their users. Yes. And then we have a regulator, an independent regulator, I guess in GDPR style we've got the... Yeah, there's, there's some, this is a side point, but there's some debate, well not debate, but there's various options within the white paper as to whether that should be an existing regulator. The Information Commission, for example who administers the, the GDPR, or whether there should be a bespoke online harms regulator. Mm-hmm. I think the point I would make is, whichever way you do it, this is something that needs investment. You know, it's no good just giving the semblance of regulation. You know, whether you make it as part, added to a functional existing regulator or you have a bespoke brand new regulator. And this is something that will require a lot of investment in order to work, I think, effectively. Uh, The plan is that it will be self-funding. The the companies in scope will pay a levy, you know, might call it digital tax, they don't use that phrase. Um, (laughs) And then that will be used to fund this scheme. Whether that will actually happen, I don't know. But that is the the plan. Mm how this duty of care is going to be met then will be set out by this regulator through these codes of practice. Yes. Uh, although in some in some respects, in some areas, because we talked about just how wide the scope is, you know, anything bullying, online grooming, extremist content, mm. eco chambers and disinformation, mm. gang violence, mm. drug sales online. I mean it's it's so vast. Yeah. The sorts of harms that we're talking about. They did. The white paper talks about some of these being handled by, I guess, agencies that are already yeah engaged. So, in particular, with terrorism and online grooming, yeah. those codes of practice are not going to completely be set out by this regulator on their own. They will liaise with, I guess, other government departments. Yes, that will and it's it's interesting because the the codes of practice. So basically, with the statutory duty of care, and anyone who knows any about English and Welsh law will be familiar with this concept of a duty of care, uh, which is basically whether you breach that duty of care or not is a is a multifaceted analysis, etc. So you take into account all sorts of things, and it's almost like a balancing exercise. On balance, have the uh, the regulated entity fulfil their duty of care, and there'll be things that suggest they have, things that suggest they haven't, and you you sort of balance the two out. So it's a very flexible tool. And as you said, a lot of whether that duty has been breached will depend on compliance with these various codes of practice for a vast number of the, the harms in scope. 
but the clear emphasis if you read the paper is on two particular types where i don't think anyone would reasonably contend that these activities aren't harmful and that's the dissemination of terrorist content online and child exploitation child sexual exploitation and abuse which would cover child pornography grooming uh, etc so i think the clear focus would be on those but with the terrorist content one for example that code of practice actually has to be approved by the relevant government minister mm -hmm. which will be the probably the home secretary or this is a joint white paper from the the home department or the home office and the department of digital culture media and sport because obviously yeah. it's a cross-cutting area is that what <laughs> home department stands for is that part of the home office yeah the official title of the home secretary is and not might be this isn't very precise, but I think it's something like Secretary of State for the Home Department. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Because when I read that, because I, I read that, I, I included that in my notes and decided not to say it because okay, I've heard of BCMS. Yeah. But I've never heard of the Home Department. And yeah. It was because that title really put me off. Okay, so it's the Department for Culture, Media, and Sport, and the Home Office. Um, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Together. Okay, so. The, the sorts of things that these codes of practice will probably include from from the white paper, I, again, I've got another quote here, and I, I think this bit kind of tells us the sorts of things that will be covered. So things like minimum acceptable standards, I guess, for countering illegal content and yeah. activity. So I suppose taking things down, yeah. that, that sort of enforcement activity. And then... Also complying with information requests from the regulator yeah. where this is appropriate. And interestingly, establishing and maintaining a complaints and appeals function, mm. which meets the requirements set out by the regulator, yeah. again, where this is relevant. And I think this is quite interesting because this is where the, the issues of freedom of speech may be yeah. dealt with. This, this idea that, okay, the decision to take something down you can make mistakes when when taking something yeah. down and there needs to be some sort of appeals yeah. process for the user so i think it, it works both ways so the appeal mechanism that these companies will have to employ is an appeal is an appeal and complaints mechanism is a complaint mechanism so if you spot something content that you consider objectionable there should be a, an appropriate procedure for you to complain about that to Facebook or Twitter, whoever. But also an appeal basis, if you're on, on the other end, so you have content that's been removed, you should be able to appeal against that and argue, for example, that you know it doesn't cross that line between acceptable and unacceptable um, speech. Or, yeah, okay, this, what I said, might be offensive, but it was in the public interest to say this, that sort of thing. So that's... That's the gist of it, yeah, is the, yeah. the codes of practice will require um, adequate yeah. complaints and yeah. appeal uh, mechanism. And this is where we can get back to definitions. I contributed to a paper, actually, that touches on this, the, the issues of rule of law with content mm. regulation. And um, certainty is a principle yeah. of, of the rule of law that basically for a law to be fair, there needs to be some certainty as to what it means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is one of the issues when it comes to different platforms yeah. having, defining, well, either including things uh, that are in their terms and conditions that, you know, some, some platforms 
don't take down anything. Some yeah. platforms will take yeah. down certain kinds of material. And some, some platforms, platforms don't follow their own terms and conditions. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if, you, if you look at Gab's T's and C's, for example, yeah. they refer to, you know, you're not permitted to post anything illegal in your home jurisdiction or whatever. Yeah. But then generally speaking, I'm obviously generalising you, but Gab has made a name for itself as a staunch pro-free speech and will allow virtually anything mm-hmm. to be published on its platform. Yeah. Um, so you have to write so that part of that is the terms and conditions. Yeah. Um, but also you have to follow those terms and conditions under this scheme or face, <laughs> or face the assuming, consequences. Assuming that they do follow their own terms yeah. and conditions, then I guess having somewhere that's giving you a central definition of what some of these harms are Yeah. Um, and where, the, where that line is means that there is some consistency yeah. um, then across platforms. Yeah. Some consistency. There will always be an element of, you know, subjectivity, because uh, codes of practice are not sort of very tightly defined. They're not, you know, this the same level of precision as you would expect in a piece of legislation. Yeah. And so, and very often it'll use phrases like reasonably practicable. So you have to do what is it reasonably practicable to prevent people from accessing terrorist content on your platform etc now what does reasonably practicable mean so there's an element of certainty but also there's a large element of ambiguity there which in some ways isn't a bad thing it'll give the regulator the flexibility that it needs to adapt to changing circumstances yeah i think what will happen if the system is a success is that over you know over many years etc we're dealing with complaints with amending codes of practice etc loopholes will be discovered inconsistencies will be discovered so i think it's a gradual development process and so i don't think anyone's claiming even the government that this will be a perfect panacea to this problem um but i think most people broadly take the view that it's you know, a welcome development. Step in the right direction. Step in the right direction, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what would you say we should look out for in terms of this developing f- framework? In terms, you know, things that may need some further work on. Well, the the the, the, the parts of the white paper are very definite in terms of what will happen. So it's certain that there'll be a, a bespoke regulator. Uh, there's certain that it'll be the statute of care, there'll be codes of practice, and and there'll be a complaints procedure. Um, there's certain things now that are genuinely open, or at least ostensibly on reading the paper. So, for example, the full range of sanctions that will be used. Yes, they know that they will use fines, the good old catch-all remedy of choice, <laughs> fines. Uh, although, interestingly, they refer to them as civil fines rather than criminal fines and that's for a simple reason if you have a label something criminal and if this entails a criminal element then you have all those due process safeguards that we so rightly value in the western world you know innocent or proven guilty beyond reasonable doubt etc by calling them a civil penalty on some jurisdictions it would be called an administrative penalty it's it's sort of quasi-criminal 
which means that you don't necessarily have to follow the same criminal due process safeguards, such as the standard of proof, the burden of proof, uh, etc. So it's sort of obviously if you're the company that's being fined, it doesn't make much difference. You still have to pay, you know, X amount of you know pounds to the regulator. So it doesn't make any difference from their perspective. The effect is the same, but I think the the, the paper is very clear that these will be civil fines, which is a bit of an oxymoron, a bit of a contradiction. Yeah. But they so they won't have to comply with the due process and, and safeguards, and the regulator won't actually act as a sort of law enforcement agency. So it will rely entirely on public complaints mm-hmm. it's not like the information commission under the gdpr can go into an organization and do a, you know, a data protection audit and then find a certain problems there etc and um, it would rely almost exclusively on members of the public on complaints and reports that are published uh, etc um and there's also the option of what they call a super complaint where you give an organisation standing, you give them the ability to take this super complaint to the regulator. That's uncertain whether that will happen, but they've asked for responses to that question. Uh, and it's used in other contexts. Uh, so there's a regulator which deals with the police force, etc. Mm-hmm. There's an ability there for people to take super complaints. And basically there's a what's called a statutory instrument, a piece of secondary legislation, which lays down the organisations which have the ability to bring these super complaints. So, in this, you know, it might be consumer rights organisations, you know, the Internet Child uh, Internet Task Force and Child Protection, etc., whatever it's called these days. You know, these NGOs, charities, etc., will be this probably if that happens, will be the sort of organisation who've received a lot of input from members of the public that you know. This appeal mechanism isn't working. This complaints mechanism isn't working for mm-hmm. Facebook or whoever, and then they can take a super complaint to the to the regulator, and then the regulator will investigate to see if that company is actually complying with the the codes of practice, etc. So it's not it. Uh, so as I say, it's not a, it's not a strict criminal justice response. So that's why you would use the word quasi criminal in the sense that there will be fines but they won't be criminally imposed fines they won't be brought before a crown court or magistrate's court and the fine the fine will be opposed by an administrative agency interesting so i guess perhaps that on one hand it may help in the sense that because there is such a broad range of harms that may be um contemplated in this framework I perhaps having NGOs and public pressure Mm. groups more actively involved Mm. in collecting information about a a specific case where a company is in breach of the codes of practice and passing that on maybe that will make up somehow for the what I anticipate would be I I anticipate because it's such a broad range of harms, the the regulator couldn't possibly 
go and look for no. No. issues, but they're not expected to do no, that. No, they're not expected, anyway. yeah. So it's it's more yeah. a case of if there is a complaint, then they will investigate. They will investigate, yeah. Um, and of course, if you if you allow members of the public to take complaints direct to the regulator, they will be inundated with um, complaints. So there's various things. So in there's reporting mechanisms. So each social media company has to comply with report reporting requirements, etc. Uh, what they've done in terms of their T's and C's and complaint mechanisms and how that corresponds with the statutory duty of care, etc. So it'll be that route via which the new regulator will be able to take action. But it will be a very, I think, a facilitative process in that I very much doubt because the sort of British regulatory ethos is is usually based on what's called an enforcement pyramid. So at the bottom of the pyramid, you have the less interventionist approaches, the advice, the guidance, etc. Then there might be an enforcement notice. So you, your complaints procedure is inadequate. And this is why it's inadequate. Change it. And then if they change it, that's the end of the matter. If they don't, then you move up to the pyramid and you maybe start fining those organisations, etc. So I think this will be a very facilitative approach taken. You know, they use things like risk-based regulation, proportionate response, etc., which indicates that that approach will be taken. Now, that in many instances, there's a lot of evidence that that's the best approach to take anyway, but also that's probably the only approach that could be taken. Otherwise, you have a Herculean task here if the regulator was itself tasked with reviewing online content. Is this such a volume they couldn't do that? You know, they probably need 100,000 members of staff, even more than that, to yeah. regularly keep on top of this. So that's one of the additional benefits. If they do have this super complaint function, is you won't have a regulator inundated with you know, um, you know, a high percentage of the complaints would be frivolous and vexatious. I would have thought, um. So, so this will avoid that problem essentially. But as we were talking about fines, yeah. <laughs> so as I said, fines is definitely will be part of the scheme. If the scheme is ever brought into existence, which I'm sure it will, whatever happens in the next few months in terms of potential changes of government, <laughs> etc. Um, um, you know, I think this is something that, you know, unites both sides of the aisle, you know, in terms of both parties, this is something that they would want to do, we would hope. Um, so fines will be used, but of course there's real problems with fines in this context. In the sense that one, if you're a very large company, if you're Facebook, Google, uh, YouTube, well, YouTube's part of Google, isn't it? Um, you know, you might just say, well, we'll just absorb these fines and we'll treat them as an, just another cost of, of, of doing business. So the white paper does envisage potential, potentially more punitive sanctions. And the, the three that they talk about is individual liability. So, you know, the headquarters might be based out of jurisdiction. And if that company hasn't got any physical assets within jurisdiction, there's not much you do. You can't, you know, repossess their headquarters and sell it to pay the fine if they don't have any physical presence yeah. in the jurisdiction. So one option is to go for individual liability. So you find someone sufficiently high in the organisation and 
if they are based within juris within jurisdiction within England, Wales, or broadly the United Kingdom, then you find the individual. Uh, that's one option. The other options then would deal with a situation where there's no real physical element within jurisdiction, no buildings, no assets, no bank accounts, no employees are sufficiently high level within jurisdiction. So yeah, you can find a company that's based in Albania, you can find them ten million pounds. But if they don't pay that, there's nothing that can be done to enforce that. You can potentially enforce fines imposed in one country and another country, but that depends on those countries having a sort of mutual recognition agreement or treaty between them. But yeah, we'll enforce fines imposed in your country and you do the same. Now, of course, the companies that will flout this scheme will obviously attempt to base themselves in favourable jurisdictions, which means that these fines are unenforceable. So the other options then, and again, we're moving up this enforcement pyramid. I don't know why I'm doing that with my hands. No one can see that. But for the benefit of the tape, I'm making a pyramid sort of shape with my hands. Um, is is to what is called disruption of business activities. So that's forcing companies who provide ancillary services to social media companies to withdraw those services. So removal from search engine results within jurisdiction, yeah. um, preventing those any app, apps that that company uses being revealed in search terms. It might even be things like you know PayPal forcing PayPal to stop payment processing for that company, or even domain name registration and web hosting services. Say, you know, force them. So you've not disrupting the activity globally. But at least within jurisdiction, they will lose that yeah. presence within yeah. the jura, uh, jurisdiction. And, you know, and if enough countries worldwide follow the UK's approach, then you know the, the number of safe havens that exist will reduce and reduce and reduce. So in the end, it might just be easier for the companies to say, well, bugger this, we're going to comply, we'll comply, we'll comply. And then the very tip of the pyramid is what's called ISP blocking. Yeah. Um, so essentially removing that site from being accessible within jurisdiction. Now these things are open for discussion. Fines are definite. The individual fines, the disruption of business activity, ISP blocking, is suggested as alternatives to fines or supplements to fines, but it's not certain they'll exist. My view is I think they have to exist because otherwise you create a disproportionate burden on social media companies who happen to reside in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, they will f- comply with a fine because they can be forced to pay it. Well, a company that's based overseas won't comply with the fine. So I think because of the global nature of the, the internet, you need these additional sanctioning tools because the problem with these sanctioning tools is they are very, very severe in terms of freedom of speech, etc. So, you know, to, even if a site allows a lot of terrorist content, child sexual exploitation images on their platform, etc. There's still going to be an awful lot of material on that site, which is perfectly legitimate, perfectly harmless. But if you use ISP blocking, you're preventing people from having access to that harmless material. So it's almost like the nuclear option, Hmm. ISP blocking. But that's how what regulatory scholars call, what they call responsive regulation works the idea is i can't remember which american president said this 
Um, you can speak softly with a big stick. So when you engage in the facilitative measures, they're might more likely to be successful if you have the possibility of using the big stick. I'm mixing my metaphors now, but you know, you know, you're more likely to respond to the carrot if you have the stick as well. If you see what I mean, you're googling who the president was now, aren't you? <laughs> I am. It's about U.S. foreign policy, I think. Have you Googled speak softly with a big stick? Yes, I have. I think Roosevelt said it. However, he was quoting a West African proverb when right, he did okay. so. So, there we are. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> According to Wikipedia. <laughs> of course, Wikipedia is never wrong, as, as we know. Um, but you can see the logic of yes, that. Yeah. Um, that, it, it, you know, you're more likely to engage with the facilitative measures if you have that possibility, the, yeah. the underlying threat in the background of being hit with yeah. more yeah. punitive sanctions. So I think that will allow a responsive regulation approach. And, you know, that will be responsive to the extent to which the, the regulated entity, the, the social media company, actually engages with the process and behaves in a way which broadly fulfills the overall aims of the regulatory regime, which is removing access to potentially harmful material so we don't know for certain but my suspicion my view would be that in order to be effective you really do need these additional sanctioning tools and cannot just rely on on fines could this result in that displacement that uh colleagues yeah (laughs) joe whitaker and amy louise yeah uh, has, has also written on this idea of displacement. So um, I can see that being very effective yeah. if, say, you have a platform that hosts a lot of extreme right-wing material, for example, uh, that is overtly calling on violence mm. against particular minority groups, for example. And if if a certain approach to regulation is resulting on a lot of this sort of material yeah. being hosted on, on a particular site. I can see how, okay, if you remove it so that it can't be accessed in the UK, for example, yeah. that would be very effective mm. uh, on one hand. On the other hand, they might just move to a different platform. Yeah, that's always the problem. Yeah. In that, you know, if, if one... And that's why the scheme will help, because if one platform decides to take you know, a principled line with certain content, then the users will just migrate to a new platform or might migrate to a new platform. We've seen this happen with terrorist organisations moving from Twitter to Telegram, for example. And so that that undoubtedly might happen. But I think just because the scheme or any scheme will not be perfect doesn't mean to say that it's not an improvement. Mm-hmm. You know, so you mentioned one of our uh, colleagues, Joe Whitaker, who we should really have on at some point. Um, <laughs> he's got very strong views on most things. Um, he takes the view that, well, okay, yeah, that happens, but, you know, it, it's still a, not a good thing, but it's still worthwhile regulating certain types of content, even if that leads to displacement, because there's a reason that this organization terrorist organization has chosen twitter or facebook because that gives them the biggest reach and if you're forcing them to move on to more niche 
bespoke platforms which don't have the reach, don't have the number of followers, registered users, etc. Then that's a success of sorts because you're reducing the dissemination of that harmful material. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yes, that is an issue. It always will be an issue, but it's not necessarily an awfully bad thing. You know, it's not a perfect solution, but it's a better solution than allowing these companies, or sorry, not companies, allowing these organisations to, you know, upload terrorist content, hate speech, etc., mm-hmm. on a platform that is, you know, accessible to millions of people. Yeah, yeah. But I think the big issue with this is that all these platforms, even the more niche ones, um, will be subjected to this scheme. You know, whenever they find it useful, they might be subjected to the other measures that we've already discussed. But what this doesn't deal with is migration to the dark web or, or even the deep web. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it acknowledges that in the white paper. And this is, well, the dark web requires what they refer to a law, law enforcement response, which is this code for you know, a criminal justice response rather than a regulatory response. And that's being dealt with by the UK's national security strategy. So they sidestep this entire issue. But if this is a real success and is exported to other parts of, of the world, then I think it will more and more force platforms with whatever agenda, terrorist content, child sexual exploitation, etc., onto the deep web. So I think you mentioned, you know, private WhatsApp groups etc um or even the dark web uh, where they know it's even more difficult to reach them now that is potentially problematic because one view is well if these companies i keep saying companies if these organizations these terrorist organizations etc if they're kept on the, the the surface web the visible web then they can at least be monitored there's intelligence gathering opportunities there for yeah. the, the government agencies, MI5, MI6, uh, etc. And if we drive them underground or the digital equivalent of underground to the dark web, then we will lose out on that monitoring and intelligence gathering um, uh, opportunity. So I think that is a potentially significant issue with this scheme. Mm. That if it's successful then there will be migration to the deep web or the dark web. And, of course, then a law enforcement response is far more difficult for all the reasons that we've probably discussed in previous podcasts. Yeah. Considering yeah, how yeah, difficult yeah. it is to track people on the dark web yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah. So that is a, a potential issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's still, it's still possible. You know, law enforcement does monitor the dark web. You know, they, they, yeah. they do collect... But it is it is just that much harder. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Um, and of course, again, you can use the same argument there that well, if they are driven underground, then their reach is going to be much much less, much mm-hmm. much reduced. Um, and that's fine if you're talking about content which is you know propaganda purposes, etc. Obviously, if you if you remove or Margaret Thatcher, and I do know who said this, it was Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> the famous phrase in relation to the IRA, the oxygen of publicity, then that might be a, a, a good thing as well. But equally, you know, if you're talking about child sexual exploitation, etc., 
yeah. the purpose there isn't for propaganda purposes, spread the message of jihad or you know extreme right-wing fascist ideology, etc. If we're dealing with things like child sexual exploitation images, they're not there for that purpose, so people no. will still be able to access them yeah. via the dark web, which goes on now, obviously, yeah. but it might enhance that phenomenon of this sort of material being published on the on the dark web. So mm-hmm. there is an issue there. There's a phrase that I always use, uh, our colleague, Stuart MacDonald, um, <laughs> accuses me of overusing. Right. And that is that the... Because someone used it in relation to Brexit. Um, so <laughs> oh, no, you said the I B word. I said the B word, I know. But so, and it's, it's don't let the good be... Sorry, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And essentially that means, well, just because we will never be able to produce a perfect, all singing and dancing regulatory scheme, which is a panacea, which deals with all the harms and ills associated with the internet. Just because we cannot do that doesn't mean we don't do anything at all. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, so you can do something which improves online safety, which reduces the public's exposure to harmful content. And, you know, that's a good thing, even if that's not a perfect solution. So I don't want to come across as... As, as overly yeah. negative yeah, no, no, no. about it yeah. and I think if the white paper and the proposed regime is seen in that, that, that in that light yeah. um, then I think that's a healthy attitude to take towards it yeah yeah it's probably impossible to control everything yeah. there's always risk there's yeah. always there always will be and, yeah. and I guess living our lives requires that risk to exist well yeah exactly even. so you know yeah. we also don't want to live within a regulatory environment that is complete control yeah. in order to well, minimise you... risk. You know, there's, there's a phrase that there's some pro... Oh, it, it, not, it, I can't think of a better word, but extreme pro-free speech advocates, anti-censorship people who have referred to this white paper as the potential Chinification of the internet. And that is a potential risk that this will lead to a sanitizing agenda that you know we, we're in the, the snowflake generation etc <laughs> that you know right. you, you can't possibly be exposed to this because it will cause you too much harm so i think that's a broader danger of of this you know and my view is that if something doesn't cause demonstrable harm then you need a very good reason to inhibit the publication of of that so i think there is that risk but given the overall ethos of the white paper, as I keep saying, based on, on proportionate regulation, risk-based regulation, I think that's probably only a theoretical risk. But there is that danger that it could become mm-hmm. uh, you know, a tool of censorship, which I don't think many people would support. Uh, it's just finding that sweet spot, I guess, the appropriate yeah. balance between restricting content, which is clearly harmful, uh, you know, child exploitation images would be the obvious one, um, while also allowing free speech. Because you know, part of free speech is being exposed to ideas which we find objectionable, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, find distasteful, etc. Um, so there is that danger that it could lead to a sanitization agenda. I might be naive here, but I don't think it will. But we shall see. <laughs> we'll do another podcast in two or three years' time, and I might. Speak in my words at that point. <laughs>
a podcast might be banned by that point. But Maybe. I don't think yeah. so. <laughs> Despite everything that's happened in the last two years, we still live in a democracy. Just about. Just about. Just about. Although this is four minutes past five on the 3rd of September. <laughs> um, so who knows what's going to happen by this time tomorrow. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. I can't go there anymore. I can't talk about politics in public. <laughs> um, which is sad. Very yeah. sad. Uh, but I don't think anybody wants to hear about it anyway. Everyone is so fed no, up. No, no. So that's probably for the best. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think we've covered this topic so. very well. And um, I hope if people want to read the official uh, response to this white paper which is it fair to say you you, you led in the writing of this yes response? so the yeah. cyber threat research center sidetrack we a group of us compiled a, 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 a sidetrack response to the government white paper and we submitted that i think the deadline was the first of july or around mm-hmm. that time um, and so much of what I've said is taken from the white paper. So it was a it was a it was a collaborative effort. I was sort of I'd say the lead author on it, etc. Um, but it was a genuinely collaborative effort. So if you want to read that, yeah, I shall put that in the show notes along with the actual white paper. Yeah. So I think we'll. Oh, uh, do you have any free advertising before we go? I don't. Okay. But I think you do. Well, yes. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of podcast suggestions, very, very briefly. So, having said that I'm not allowed to talk about politics anymore... You didn't say you wasn't allowed, you said you didn't feel you were able to. (laughs) Um, You've got a few months before you're deported back to Portugal, you'll be be fine. They can't deport me now. I've I've got the passport. Of course, I forgot. Yeah. (laughs) Still paying the credit card bill for that, mind. <laughs> I'll be paying that for a while. Uh, but there we go. Investing in the future. And so. it might, in the future, might even be a dark blue passport. <laughs> when we've thrown off the, the yoke of the European Union, you can go back to a navy blue passport. Yeah, but, but it's still brown. I can I confirm mean, yeah. the new... The I got it very recently. Uh, but it doesn't have the little... European Union thing on it anymore. Does it not? No. Mm. So, you know. Yeah, the, the, the logo with the stars. Do you, um, no, do you know they used to have this little golden square with a ho- with a, a, circle. With a circle yeah. in the middle? Um, that's not there anymore. Oh. I don't know if that's... Um, yeah, so there well, we go. Anyway, we, we, we've, we've gone off point here. <laughs> we digress. Yes. Um, <laughs> so... What was going to say? Yes, free advertising. Two, a couple of podcasts that I'd recommend. First of all, there's a podcast called Talking Politics, which is amazing. They, I should have opened this ready to actually tell you. Here we go. David Ransiman, I think is how you pronounce his name. He is a professor at Cambridge University in the Department of Politics and International Studies. And then there's Helen Thompson, uh, Christopher Brooke, and Chris Bickerton, as well as Aaron Aaron Rapport. And this podcast is actually a lot of fun to listen to. They bring a lot of history into their analysis, but it's not a stuffy podcast at all. 
the reference to Oxbridge would probably make you think of you know really boring. No, it's not like that at all. They are very engaging and their analysis is spot on. And I particularly enjoy when I didn't realize he was a professor. You know, I, I'm only just reading their biographies <laughs> now. I was like, oh, he's a professor. Uh, David, as a, you know, I refer to him in my own head. I really enjoy how you can, you can hear the joy and the desperation in his voice when he's talking about certain topics. <laughs> joy and desperation. <laughs> and that really adds, you know, to me that really adds a special something to his analysis of uh, politics. And I, and I think people need political analysis that is kind of devoid of noise. What was he called again? Talking politics. It's called talking politics. Okay. Yeah. So, and they have had a few episodes about Brexit, obviously. Uh, yes. Uh, but, and another one, which is actually more related to our podcast topic, is Darknet Diaries. Darknet Diaries is just very enjoyable. Um, the tagline is "Stories from the Dark Side of the mm-hmm. Internet." Mostly, what happens is. I think they're about an hour long, and he he's a. I guess it's like an investigative journalism piece. Who's he? Who's um, the? Oh, right. Who's the author? Again, like I should have had this ready, and I don't. Wait a minute. Yeah, Jack Resider. He he's a reporter. He reports on cybercrime and stuff okay. like that. Um, and he he does this podcast, and it's very good. So yeah. That's available it. from all good podcast. All of them. Yes. <laughs> cool. I think that's it for today. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. And, and hopefully it won't time. be 11 months until we, <laughs> we do another one. No. 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 Next month. I think we already had a couple of ideas for yeah. next month. So we'll be back. So, yes. Okay. See you soon. Bye. Bye. I'm not sure I still remember how to do this. If you usually start with a welcome to the whatever number. Yeah, I've written it down. I had to look it up. Oh, it's been a while. Have <laughs> <laughs> you pressed it? It is recording. Well, you could have told me. <laughs> you have a glass of water. Go on. Do it all again because I hesitated. I when I I forgot what my title was. <laughs> now for, start from scratch, right? Okay. <clears throat> I feel my voice is breaking. <laughs> Your balls finally dropped. Yeah. Ruffle. I actually contributed to. A, oh, what was that? I oh, watch. watch. Yeah, it's telling me to move. <laughs> It's my it's my inactivity tracker. I see. I see. <laughs> oh my god, this is so embarrassing. I'm gonna cut all of this out. It's the joys of editing, isn't it? <laughs>